one of my challenges as a writer is to make sure that I'm giving the reader details that the character cares about rather than details that I care about. I'd say that's the key to world building. Jessica Anderson. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to another episode of Writing Roots. I am Lee Hull. And I'm Lieses. And we're going to take another dive into magic. Magic is a great thing because we talked about it in August. We talked about it in last episode. But magic is something that is so vast, so wide that we can really talk for hours about it. So you're going to have to be patient with us. <laughs> I guarantee we've cut more from these episodes than we will ever talk about it. Oh, oh yeah. I think from our original world building episode, we cut two thirds of it, two thirds, just to get it down to our approximately 10 minute podcast length. (laughs) Having magic in your story is more than just having something that is fun and creative and different. Often the magic is a tool to get the characters in or out of trouble. It is a tool to help develop your characters. If you can do it without magic, then maybe that's better. When you are trying to create and come up with your system, what you need to think about is what will that magic do in the story? There was a early 20th century anthropologist named Bronisław Malinowski, and I'm probably butchering that name. It's Polish, so that gives you an idea. In his research and anthropology work, he focused on ethnology and social theory. And he wrote several books on mythology and cultures and stuff like that. One of the books that he wrote is Myth in Primitive Psychology. And in there, he explains that a lot of the magic in mythology accomplishes one of three things. It either produces, it protects, or it destroys. If you're trying to come up with what purpose magic has in your story, think about does it do one of these things? Does it produce, does it protect, or does it destroy? And how does that work with the characters? Is it a character that has a destruction power that wants nothing more than to just put things back together? I'd say as a reader of a lot of fantasy, I think it's fun to put yourself in the shoes of whatever the character is. It's like, oh, with that power, I would do such and such. You've mentioned in earlier episodes about how you grew up wanting to be able to do stuff. And I think a lot of Putting magic in your story is simply a fantasy fulfillment. If you go back to Hollywood in the 1930s, especially, that was the Great Depression era, you're going to see a lot of lavish parties and beautiful dresses because the people were seeking this escapism in their entertainment. And I think magic ends up playing a lot of the same role. So what the magic does specifically depends on your plot, depends on your character's but having magic is just fun. So let's get into some of the magic specifics here. One of the best places to go is actually D&D. Dungeons and Dragons has a wonderful magic system that is inspired by a lot of cultural history magics, but includes a lot of other elements. And a lot of your target audience is already familiar with the D&D's type structure. A lot of people who read fantasy also play D&D. So if you're doing that kind of thing, you won't have to spend a lot of time teaching your reader 
how the magic works, which works better because then you can focus on the actual story, the plot, the characters. One of the first things that when it comes to a D&D design type of magic system is that powers are sorted into different categories. And with the magic system in the book that you're writing currently, each of those types of powers is generated by a different kind of gemstone, which are parts of the source of magic. If you want to be able to do something else with it, you have to combine the gemstones. So the amethyst in your story will create any shape, but it's always made out of this magical force field. If I'm using an emerald in the story, I can make a plant appear and grow, but I can't manipulate that plant until I combine it with an amethyst. And that's when you can get a lot more of the complex, the summoning rats and other creatures is because you're combining magic that are initially sorted. Part of why I have it sorted that way is one to limit myself. In my writing, I don't need my readers to know everything about the magic system and how it works for them to understand what a character is doing. I don't want to back myself into a deus ex machina corner where I'm, oh, how am I going to get out of this? Well, I'll just make my magic do something different. So I set out to limit my system, to put categories on it, to put them in little neat boxes so that I had an idea moving forward about what it can or cannot do. Those boxes really make the magic system ingestible. As we're talking with the mermaids and their power over song, let's say that's like the mermaid style is all auditory magic then we can explore that as we're in mermaid land. And then as we move on to the dwarves who work mostly with rock and moving large objects and mass, you can then explore that. You don't have to information dump, well, the dwarves do this and the mermaids do this. And da, 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 da. When you're sorting your abilities, when you're sorting your powers, it helps categorize for the reader. I know building magic can be fun, I know that it can be exciting because you're like, look at this new toy, this wonderful, fun thing. I want it to do all the things. Putting a limit on yourself is best. If you're going to have mermaids, they probably shouldn't have lightning powers because they live in water and lightning just doesn't mix with water. So when you're creating different species and different races in your stories and you're giving them magic abilities, think about the culture. Think about what they do as a people and what magic would make sense to fit that. Another way to limit yourself as an author in your storytelling, in your magic system, is having spell components. You see this a lot more historically, where you need the eye of Newt and you know the head of cabbage or whatever. You need these spell components in order to execute the spell. That can also give you a little side quest for your main characters to go, oh, well, we need to get this head of cabbage before we cast the spell. I love it. I have Newt, head of cabbage. <laughs> They're going vegan. Bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. <laughs> so there are three main kinds of spell components. There is the verbal. So your character has to say something. This is a lot of your traditional Halloween type witches. Harry Potter has Harry a lot of the verbal Yes, especially early Harry Potter and William Shakespeare, his witches. They were all pretty much verbal components. Another component is movement. You have to swish and flick. Doctor Strange, actually. 
Yes. His magic is all movement-based. He has to do a very specific thing with his hands to create the desired effect, which is just really cool watching it in movies, but it's also a fun art experience for the comic. And then, like we talked earlier, ingredients. In D&D, you need a diamond worth a thousand gold in order to resurrect somebody from the dead. So think about what your magic system needs to be, what kind of limits it needs to have, and then consider applying these different things, your verbal, your ingredients. Another way to limit it is spell delivery. If you are trying to affect someone else or something else, you are going to be delivering this spell. So there are basically three ways to do that. One is over a range. I can shoot lightning bolts at you. I can be across the room or whisper in your ear. Whatever the magic is, I can do it across a distance. So if you're just going to nuke an entire room and you don't want to be in the room when it's nuked, that's going to be a ranged spell. You also have touch spells where you have to come in physical contact with another person or another thing in order to deliver that spell. A lot of your healing abilities are also touch spells because mostly as a storyteller, you want to get your healer in some kind of danger. So if the barbarian is out there and the healer is like, wait, I must save them because I am a healer, but it means I'll get in range of the arrows. That's a choice they make. It's dramatic. It's interesting. Otherwise, the healers would be hiding behind a rock and just going ding the entire time. (laughs) Pretty much the final spell delivery type is ingested. This is going to be a lot of your magical poisons, your alchemy kind of things. And a lot of the ingested spells are stored somehow. So I can cast the spell and then die. Someone else can pick it up and finish the spell and execute the spell by taking it into themselves. So the final thing that I wanted to talk about when we are talking about creating magic is magical realism. Obviously, magic isn't real. I mean, I can't really push someone across the room with my mind. I wish I could. Much as I'd like to. (laughs) Write magic in a way that people can believe that that's how it is. That's why I said earlier, mermaids probably shouldn't have electricity powers because that would be a break in the suspension of disbelief because people know electricity and water don't mix. So when you're writing that magical realism, make it believable, make it real. And then make it real in the world. So instead of just having ghosts in your story, give the ghosts a purpose. One of my favorite things that I've seen online is in New Orleans, cab drivers won't go to a certain area after dark because ghosts will hop in their cab, try to hail them, and never reach the destination. And so the difference between horror and magical realism is, ah, there was a ghost in my cab versus... Darn it, they didn't pay the cab fare again. So it creates a fun element when you have something that is real and applicable. I love stories that represent magic as a normal, everyday part of life. That's magical realism. Creating a system that is part of the economy, that is part of the government system, that's part of how the society and culture functions. So I think we've given you far too much to think about for this episode. So go out there and maybe design a magic system that works for your story. And until we see you next time, write selfishly.
If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing.